Uh, I just want to tell you again just a little bit about myself because I'm kind of new here uh, at uh, Hope. And um, I told you last week how we started attending this little country church where I came to know Christ at the age of 16. Well, at the age of 17, about one year after I came to know Christ, um, uh, I asked the pastor if I could preach a sermon. And uh, you know how you can read nonverbal communication? Uh, his nonverbal communication looked very tentative about this, you know, this, this new Christian. Uh, but I was very zealous for the Lord. And he said, well, let me think and pray about it. And he thought and prayed about it. And then he decided that uh, it would be okay uh, if I did it in an evening service where only like about 20 people came. The damage would be minimal. <laughs> Furthermore, he uh, insisted that I write it out word for word. And uh, he made corrections, and he kind of mentored me uh, through that process. But then uh, I, someone heard that I had preached a sermon and um, said, you know, we're doing a, a thing at a rescue mission. Would you be willing to come and preach at a rescue mission? So I preached at this uh, rescue mission, also at the age of 17. And out of those two opportunities just grew numerous opportunities to speak among uh, youth groups and retreats and, um, you know, just little devotionals here and there. Um, and so people started saying, you know, I, I think you should go into ministry. You're so zealous. You're talking to people about Christ all the time. Uh, I didn't even know there were schools for ministers at the time, but I talked to my pastor and he said, well, I think you should go to Bible college. So I went to uh, Lancaster Bible College. But before that, and, and this is where it really gets strange, especially if you're a young person, um, in my senior year of high school, I would go downtown Buffalo uh, every week take a bus and preach a sermon in a rescue mission because this one guy uh, set me up for it. And, uh, uh, and I would prepare my sermons during my study halls. And so that's how my, uh, my uh, ministry career began. And God called me into ministry. And I, I knew at the age of 17, you know, what I uh, wanted to do in life. And so I was very fortunate in that way. But what a great congregation. They just took me under their wings, let me do things, and um, mentored me along the way. Well, if you would, again, take your Bible and again turn to Matthew 28. And again, you'll find that on page 844. Uh, I would like to continue us thinking uh, along the lines that we started last week. Um, Matthew chapter 28, beginning at verse 16. And I'll go ahead and get started in the interest of time. Then the eleven disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. Verse 17. When they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. And then Jesus came and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Father, as I take and lead us in thinking about our Lord Jesus, his glory, his commandment, I just pray that you will assist me and you will open up hearts and ears to be responsive to the ministry of your Holy Spirit among us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I um, 
assume that uh, many of you are like me, where at this time of year we go through this thing that I call post-football traumatic syndrome. Um, And since I don't follow any other sports, uh, my case is exceptionally uh, acute. And uh, I'm sure that um, some of you uh, have the same psychological disorder in your life, whether you'd be willing to admit that or not. Um, And I would be interested in starting a support group if you want to see me uh, after the service. But um, in football, when your team has the ball... Uh, and they're ready to call a play, they have a a little meeting that's called a huddle. And uh, they decide which of their 100 plays in their playbook they're going to play. It's a a play that the coach usually calls and sometimes the quarterback, um, but it's a play that they believe will achieve the specific aim needed in that game. Uh, It's a play that uh, they feel they have the uh, personnel on the field that can execute it, and it's a play that they have practiced hundreds of times before. And then they call that play. Well, it occurred to me, because I think so much in football analogies, that when Jesus was given the Great Commission, he too had 11 men in his huddle, right? Only Judas was missing, so it was like a football huddle. And he was like the coach, and he was calling the play from the sideline. And the play that he called was... Make disciples of all nations. Wow, what a play. That's pretty overwhelming when you think about the fact that he was talking to 11 guys and the then known world, the Roman Empire, according to censuses that were done at that time, had approximately 55 million people living in the Roman Empire. Do you think you'd be overwhelmed? You're 11 guys and you're being told, to take the gospel to the whole world, you know there's 55 million people in the Roman Empire. You know that there's uh, like uh, a billion, a million, millions more uh, beyond that, and uh, that there's all kinds of languages out there that people speak. I would think if I was in that huddle, I would be pretty overwhelmed. Well. They did have some practice sessions. You remember that Jesus sent the 12 out on one occasion. He sent the 72 uh, disciples of his out on another occasion. But notice, this was just a practice squad. They just went to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They went to fellow Jews. They went to fellow Palestinians. Um, And uh, there were approximately uh, 500,000 people living in Palestine at the time. That's less than are living in Worcester County at the moment. And so uh, they had this practice session with this practice squad, but what is that in comparison to the assignment of going to the whole world? And um, imagine if Jesus were to appear to us today, what are we, maybe uh, 120 in number? And in other words, we're about 10 times the size of that huddle that he met with that day. Could you imagine if he said to us, his disciples, I want you to go to the 195 nations around the world and make disciples among all of them, would you feel overwhelmed? See, I'm trying to draw this out of the hypothetical. I'm trying to, you know, like um, get you to feel something of what they felt. And then I think we would feel overwhelmed if Jesus said, here's what I want you to do, Hope Chapel. I want you to go to the 799,553 people that we have reported in our last census. 
and I want you to make disciples among all of them. You would feel pretty overwhelmed, wouldn't you? Especially in light of the fact that last week we discussed how the uh, discipleship process begins with evangelizing and then taking those that believe and baptizing them and then taking those that believe and are baptized and congregationalizing them and stabilizing them in their newfound faith and then training them so that they look at every single facet and area of their life and bring it into conformity with the will of God so that it's going and growing in the right direction and that they're then uh, equipped and, and they know how God has made them and what he has made them to do, and they're uh, mobilized to the max. And, and so I went away from church last week feeling a little bit overwhelmed uh, at my very own sermon. And um, the Lord Jesus uh, had 11 men in this huddle, uh, according to our sermon notes there, if you want to take those. And, uh, you know, and what were the chances of them being able to run the play that he had called? Well, it would be utterly impossible without divine resources. You see, if, if all we did was focused on responsibility, if all you did is walked away thinking about the responsibility of making disciples, it would be absolutely overwhelming. The scale would just be severely tipped. But when we balance that with what we're going to look at today, the divine resources that are available to us as we go through this process, then it helps us to relax and to not feel uh, overwhelmed. So let's take a look at uh, three resources. And the first one is uh, presence, uh, divine presence. And um, because you can imagine that as the disciples heard this assignment from Jesus, that they were somewhat overwhelmed. And yet Jesus knew this was a scary thought, but he promised that his presence would go with them. He, he said, go and make disciples. But he said, and remember, I am with you always uh, to the end of the age. Now, whenever we go through anything in life that is bigger than us, we like to have somebody present with us. I remember one time when I was in college, uh, that um, a, a bunch of uh, people came back from a spelunking trip, uh, going into a cave. And um, I said, hey, I want to try that sometime. And the guy was explaining to me where the cave was, and I said, uh-uh, <laughs> I'm not going to no cave. I've never been in one before. I'm not going without someone who uh, has been there before, been there, done that. And I, said, I asked him if I could go on his next trip, and he took me. And so we, we found this cave, and, you know, I know some of you have been to some of these caverns that tourists go to, but this isn't like that. This is not something you just walk in and like, huh? This is something you crawl around in. And if you're claustrophobic, you don't belong. Uh, it, it was unbelievable the little opening that we had to get through in order to get into the cave. And sometimes it would open up, and sometimes it would shrink. Uh, in fact, my wife, Martha, and I, our, my, my first date with Martha was in this cave. Um, now, again, with a group, okay? With a group. And, um, but what I liked about caves, and I had taken several other girls that I was a little bit interested in uh, there because when the bats come out, girls tend to cling. And for a single adolescent guy, you know, that's a really cool thing. But the night I went with Martha... I made the mistake of inviting one of her friends, uh, one of her girlfriends, and they clung to each other, and I you know, <laughs> stood there and waited till they got done. 
But there was no way that I was going to go in this cave without uh, someone uh, being with me. And Jesus knew that it was going to be scary to make disciples among all the uh, nations of the world. And so he said uh, that, lo, I am with you always. Of course, then he left the scene. But he left the Holy Spirit. And in fact, his disciples started freaking out when he started talking about, I'm going away, guys. And uh, where I'm going, you can't come. And in a little while, you're going to see me no more. And they really started freaking out. But he said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. And the word counselor means someone to go with you, someone to stand beside you, someone to assist you. And it's interesting in uh, Greek that that word another, there's two Greek words for another, one meaning another of a different kind and another being another of the same kind. And this is another of the same kind. So I'm not going to be with you any longer, but I'm going to be with you by sending you the Holy Spirit. And uh, on another occasion, he said, I tell you the truth, uh, it is for your good that I am going away. Because unless I go away, the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go away, I will send him to you. Now, that just blows us away because how could it be more advantageous to have the presence of the Holy Spirit with us than to have the actual, tangible, visible presence of Jesus walking with us. But I'm going to take Jesus at his word. I'm going to believe his word that it's more advantageous for us with the presence of the Holy Spirit uh, walking next to us. So disciple making can be scary, but courage comes from the Lord's presence in our lives. That's the first divine resource. The second one is that uh, we get power, Holy Spirit power. And um, uh, Jesus told his disciples, he said, when he reformatted the uh, Great Commission on one occasion, he said, um, you know, I don't want you to leave Jerusalem. I want you to stay right here. But once the Holy Spirit's come, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses to all the ends of the earth. And we desperately need Holy Spirit power if we are going to be effective at fulfilling our mission of making disciples. Now, I want you to think about something because Americans are a real, we can do it people. And it is to a large degree a part of what has made our nation so great. However, when it comes to doing the work of the Lord, the work of the Lord does not go forward on the basis of human exertions of energy. It is a supernatural work, and it must be accomplished through human beings by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we are a very self-reliant people. Uh, I'll give you an illustration to show you how severe this problem is. I go and I meet with a group of pastors, and the seminar is on uh, how to do worship so that your church experiences dynamic worship. And it was all about technique. It was all about, you know, this musical technique and this 
uh, emotional technique and all this. And I came away saying, wait, it shows so much what we Americans do is that we think that we can cause the work of God to advance. You go to a teacher training event, for example, or you go to a, uh, an event where you're taught how to witness or anything, and you can feel it so strongly that we as Americans believe that our methods, our training, our education, our knowledge, and so forth are going to advance the Lord's work. And yet, we have not learned the secret of advancing the Lord's work through the power of the Holy Spirit. We put so much energy into preparation for the things that we do without putting an ounce of prayer into them sometimes. And so we really need, we're not taking advantage of this resource of Holy Spirit power. And when we're not, for those of you that understand the workings of an, oops, wait, I must have had the wrong one up there, right? Uh, the workings of an internal combustion engine, us putting our methods together are like putting the gas and the uh, air in the right mixture, but never having that spark plug fire. It wouldn't do a thing. The car wouldn't move. And even so, the Lord's work doesn't move unless the Holy Spirit sparks and ignites the things that we're doing. So I always like this example of the Lord feeding the 5,000, which was really probably like 15,000, where he, um, he said, guys, I want you to feed this crowd. They said, how are we going to feed this crowd? We don't have enough food to feed this crowd. Send them away. Get them, get them into the villages before the shops close. And Jesus said, no, I want you to feed them. Well, Lord, there's, there's a boy here. He's got five loaves of bread and two fish. How, how are we going to feed all these people? And Jesus said, bring them to me. And uh, Jesus multiplied it and he fed the people. Even as I preach or as I teach or as I witness or as I counsel or whatever I do, I realize that all I'm doing is offering the Lord a few loaves of bread and a few fish. But that unless his presence and his power work through that, nothing of any eternal value is going to happen because it takes the work of the Spirit. And we all need to uh, adopt that attitude. This week I met... Uh, Sean Pillay, uh, one of our pastors down in uh, Norwich, Connecticut. And he's telling me about this guy, Dennis Holland. And, and Dennis um, uh, is this uh, uh, drug user, and uh, he sold drugs and he sold women. And uh, Sean just developed a, a relationship with him and witnessed to him. And this guy now is a believer in Christ. Well, if you were to talk to Sean, Sean would say, I didn't do anything different with him than I do with anybody else. But the Holy Spirit worked. And, you know, we never know when the Holy Spirit's going to work. We never know who the Holy Spirit is going to work in. Uh, don't give up on your family. Don't give up on your friends. Jesus said that uh, the wind blows wherever it pleases. And you hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it goes or uh, where it comes from or where it's going. And so it is with everyone born of the Holy Spirit. I I think what he's saying there is that you never know when the Holy Spirit is going to uh, work in a person's life. So let's not give up. So in our sermon notes, we must be aware of, uh, beware of reliance upon human resources and rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to save, and to sanctify. Which brings us to our third and final resource, and that is prayer, serious prayer. Um, Jesus said uh, that um, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, ask 
the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, why would Jesus ask us to pray for workers if praying didn't have something to do with effectively recruiting the workers that are needed in disciple-making? Why, why, why ask? And yet, uh, what do we do? We do everything but pray sometimes. Um, the Apostle Paul asked, he, he gave some prayer requests, just like Pastor Neil just gave us some prayer requests. He said, pray for me, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given to me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Uh, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. Pray that I may declare it clearly as I should. Why would he ask for prayer? That he be able to speak clearly understandable spoken words or that he would have opportunities to share those words or that when he had those opportunities that he would be fearless and bold and courageous. Why would he ask people to pray about those things if praying about those things wouldn't have an effect on those kind of things? And then uh, in Philippians 1, 9 through 11, and all these other scriptures that are listed down here, these are prayers of the Apostle Paul for the spiritual development of people. He said, uh, this is my prayer for you Philippians, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Why would he pray for the spiritual development of other people if such praying wouldn't make a difference? And why then do we do everything but pray. We do all our preparation, but so often the typical American church lacks prayer in its efforts. And look at what Jesus said, and we're running out of time, so I'm going to accelerate this. He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then your Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. And he didn't just say that that time. He said, whatever, anything, anything, whatever. And there are other scriptures where he used the words, whatever and anything in relationship to prayer. Not meaning that we can ask for anything that we want, but we can ask for anything that we need in this ministry of making more and better disciples of Christ. And this is one of my heroes of the faith, George Mueller. I love the do. I, I, thought, I thought the do was something that kids were doing today. I didn't realize it was such an old-fashioned thing. But anyway, do you know this story? George Mueller, um, he, uh, uh, the, the, the Black Plague went through England, and thousands of kids were left without moms and dads and aunts and uncles to take care of them. And he decided to start an orphanage, and he started with like 20 kids. But he had some policies that he would uh, uh, never borrow money. He'd never ask anybody for money. He would pray for what was needed to feed those kids. And over the course of the history of that orphanage, uh, God literally ran millions of dollars through this man's hands uh, into the mouths of orphans, ending up with 2,000 orphans. And all they did is trusted God to provide. And the reason, the purpose of his orphanage was to feed uh, and care for orphans, but also to glorify God by showing his great ability to provide 
for his work in response to the prayers of his people. And God was greatly glorified through this ministry, and it stands as a great encouragement to us today. Not only were orphans fed, but they became Christian, and they and many of them went to foreign mission fields to further the work of making disciples. So you see, we've got all these divine resources at our exposure, and it's going to be absolutely overwhelming with responsibility of going through evangelize, baptize, congregationalize, stabilize, um, uh, Christianize and uh, mobilize, it's going to be absolutely overwhelming. And to think of having to do that among all the people groups of the world, unless we realize that, wow, these divine resources that he has made available to us uh, more than even it out. And the coach, in fact, has called a play that the players can run. And even think about your own ministries, whether it's Awanas or, or whether it's youth ministry or whether it's teaching a Sunday school class or, or um, uh, leading in a worship team or, or whatever you do to serve the Lord. Make sure you're not just strutting in with self-reliance. Make sure that there's a dependence on God and the resources that he has made available to us. So, Father, take these feeble words, these loaves of bread, these fish, and please use them in the hearts of your people for the glory of your own name. Amen. Emmanuel is going to come and lead us in communion.